my name is Travis Bond. I have the joy and the privilege of serving as senior pastor here. And one of the reasons that I am a pastor at all, you know, the different tapestry that God weaves together, the different threads, right? So one of the reasons that I'm a pastor is because about 20 years ago, um, in a Western Civ class in college, we were given an assignment. We got to choose from one of five books, and then we had to do a write-up and a presentation and a project on this. And of course, as a science major, you know the humanities courses, they were just core. They were required and therefore really not worth my uh, intellectual energy. So I chose the shortest book available of the five, and it was a little book called uh, The Five Points of Calvinism by Steele and Thomas. And it rocked my world. Um, I read that book. I don't know if any of you would be familiar with it. I know some of you certainly will be familiar with the concepts. I read it straight through in a day. It's longer now, so if you go find it, I don't be terribly impressed that I read it because it was, it was a much shorter version back then. And I put it down on my, my end table, and I picked it up two days later, and I read the entire thing again, and it absolutely blew my mind because at the time I was doing, um, I was of course doing full course load at school and then I was doing ministry at a local uh, juvenile delinquent lockup facility. So I was already committed to the gospel. Um, I was passionate for the work of evangelism, but I read this book and it gave me for the first time a framework for my theology in which to think, a paradigm for what I believed that for me, was like water to parched lips. And all that to say, those five points of Calvinism, which are better known as the doctrines of grace, those um, left me now five centuries later indebted to this man named John Calvin. Pause button on that. Review time, pop quiz. We are celebrating this month what was the year in which the Reformation, this historical event called the Reformation, what was the year in which that began? Go. Yes. You are warming the cockles of my heart right now. Well done. Okay, so this, that makes it, this is the the 500th anniversary of this historical period called the Reformation. If you're into this kind of stuff, it's kind of a big deal. Out of that period of the Reformation, which lasted for, you know, a few decades, we would probably isolate it at, out of that period comes five biblical doctrines. This is now separate from five points of Calvinism. Comes five biblical doctrines that we would say were not, they didn't come really out of the Reformation. They were rediscovered after having been kind of buried and hidden for far too long. They, 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 they're, they're rediscovered during the time of the Reformation. They're called the solas. Sola, of course, means alone. Um, so for the month of October, we're doing two things. We're preaching through these five doctrines for five Sundays, and at the same time, we're trying to preach in parallel on one of uh, five key reformers who were coming out of that time period. So if you've been with us, week one, we looked at Martin Luther, uh, probably the most well-known of all of them, and the doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone. Week two, um, last Sunday, Pastor Carl took us, um, uh, introduced us to Ulrich Zwingli and the doctrine of sola fide, or faith alone. And then that brings us to this morning and the doctrine of sola gratia, 
And the reformer is a man named John Calvin. So when it comes to uh, Reformation history, those three guys, that was the order of their birth date, that's, those three are kind of the big three. Luther, Zwingli, Calvin. Um, and it was Calvin who maybe as much, maybe more than any of them, preached so much about grace. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So, if you brought your Bibles, and I encourage you to do so, um, or if you didn't, grab one in the pew and open up to New Testament book, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians, chapter 2. While you're finding that, um, if you remember last month, September, we did a little mini-series on marriage, and in that, I intentionally tried to steer away from not just using the, like the traditional marriage passages, um, kind of broaden it up, really focus on the heart, which applies to marrieds and singles and everybody. Um, this month, for these doctrines, I'm intentionally going to kind of the epic passages related to each doctrine. Um, and for my, in my opinion, there's no better choice to try and preach the concept of grace than Ephesians chapter 2. Um, if this goes the way that I hope it will, then um, by the time we get to the end of the sermon, we will see the end of the text and Calvin's life kind of converge there in those final verses. So that's the plan. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, first 10 verses, if you've opened up to it, here now, church that I love, here now, the very word of our Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by, what's the word? You have been saved raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Uh, You will find three headers in your bulletin if you're helped to have an outline as we go through this. The first header in there, dead in sin. Dead in sin. So six or seven months, eight or nine months, maybe more from now, when you think about these reformers, I know we're not going to remember all of the facts, and that's fine, but are there a few snapshot scenes that we can kind of grab hold of 
to go to when we think about these different names, when we come across them in the future. Um, I think for, for Luther, it's a pretty easy one, right? It's the 95 Theses, nailing them up there on the church door at Wittenberg. Uh, for Ulrich Zwingli, maybe it's him and some uh, like-minded Christians eating a sausage supper, if you remember that scene, um, in protest against these non-biblical food laws that had been placed on top of the people in response to all, a whole bunch of other non-biblical stuff as well. Um, and then for Calvin, for Calvin, I think our scene is this. Bent over his desk, quill pen and paper, writing out what is called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, translated into English. This is a two-volume set. Several years back, I was given a very nice copy of these, um, which I would be happy to loan out if any of you are interested in taking a few months and kind of chewing, chewing through it a little bit. Um, the Institutes were important. Here's why. Here's why they matter. Because if, if Martin Luther, stay with me here, if Martin Luther was Bob Dylan, <laughs> okay, he's writing the lyrics, then John Calvin is Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> like, thank you, good, at least. Giving like technical perfection to those lyrics. And some of you, some of us younger folks might need to now go home and listen to All Along the Watchtower as we exit the church today, both versions from those two guys. If Luther, in other words, if, if Luther is the, the Reformation trailblazer, right, then Calvin was the careful thinker who bound up all of this Protestant belief into a cohesive, systematic doctrine. Calvin systematized in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, Reformation doctrine. That's not all that he did, but it was a very important part of what he did. Uh, Calvin was born in a place called Noyon, France. It was a little bit northeast of Paris. At his father's insistence, he studied law. He came under the influence of a man named Nicholas Cop at the Sorbonne. He was a uh, cop, was rector, a uh, rector rather, at the Sorbonne, the University of Paris. And what makes him interesting is because the Sorbonne was a hotbed for Roman Catholicism, right? Except that Nicholas Cop shocked everyone when he came out in more and more support of this German guy named Martin Luther. And so that had a dramatic influence on John Calvin, and it put him on the road to eventually professing faith in Jesus Christ. Um, this would be, if you like, a timeline in your head. We're now like mid-1530s. Um, and then two, just two years after professing Christ, at the age of only 26 now, uh, Calvin wrote his first version of the Institutes. Uh, and he continued to um, revise them for the next three decades, uh, for 30 years. You know, he was kind of like George Lucas with Star Wars, except Calvin, when he tweaked them, they actually got better and better as the years went by until finally um, he passed away and they're in the, the form that we have them today. The Institutes deal head on with things like sovereignty of God, the grace of God in our salvation, the brokenness of man, uh, theological word, depravity, 
of man. And it's the brokenness of man that's what's highlighted in the text that I asked you to keep open on your laps. Because if you look at verse 1 there, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So verses 1 to 3 describe a people here who were dead in sin. Dead men walking. Dead women walking. In writing to the Ephesian church, Paul wanted to make clear to them, he wanted them to understand that mankind is not merely lost and in need of direction. Mankind is not confused and in need of instruction or weak and in need of strength or sick and in need of medicine. You and I, it's saying, are spiritually dead and in need of life. And so if, if, if you're new to scripture or church, you're kind of coming with a blank slate I think this is a great time to point out to you that the storyline of the Bible then is that we were made to be in relationship with God. We have chosen to live our lives without God. We are, as a result, alienated from God and spiritually dead. Verse 1. It's kind of like, and here's a name you've never heard of, Fabrice Muamba. Actually, if you're a big soccer fan, you might have heard of that name because this was kind of a big deal about five years ago. Uh, Fabrice Muamba, he was born in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and in 2012, while playing in an FA quarterfinals match, he collapsed mid-game quickly becomes clear this is not a run-of-the-mill injury, right? So his medical staff from his team, they race to assist. After a while, the medical staff from the other team also racing to assist. The entire stadium grew quiet. And on that soccer field, is after a while, the stadium begins to quietly chant his name, Muamba, Muamba. He didn't hear him because he died in front of him. And what physically happened at that soccer match in the sight of thousands is spiritually mirrored in the hearts of millions. And you were dead, the text says, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We are dead men and women walking. First header, dead in sin. Second header, thank goodness, <laughs> alive in Christ. Alive in Christ. And if, if you're following along, verse 4 is the obvious inflection point, right? But God. Wonderful two words there. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. 
you have been saved. And so it was by grace that John Calvin was saved. Like I said, he was in his, his mid-20s. He professed Christ. It was in the 1534, 1536. It was in that window somewhere where he first professed faith in the living Jesus. Um, he then, after that, uh, you know, he penned the first version of the Institutes. Then he determined to travel to Strasbourg, France, where he was going to assist uh, another fairly well-known reformer, a man named Martin Bucer, in the work of the Reformation there in Strasbourg. If uh, you like to think geographically, and I am enormously helped when I do that, uh, there's really just three locations when we think about the life of Calvin that were really significant. The one, obviously, is birthplace in Noyon, and then two cities, Strasbourg and uh, Geneva. He was planning to go to Strasbourg, France, um, but at the time, uh, he was passing through down south there. He was passing through this city of Geneva, Switzerland. Um, it was, it's international, cosmopolitan today. Same thing back then, really significant um, crossroads for, for culture. Um, this was an interesting moment at that time for Geneva because uh, the, the city authorities had just kicked out of Geneva Roman Catholicism. And remember, you can't think like Americans now. We're, we're talking about a time period where there really wasn't a separation between church and state. That wasn't so much a thing back then. Um, so Calvin, he's passing through Geneva for just one night, except another Christian in the city, a man named uh, Guillaume or William Farrell, French evangelist. He's in Geneva. He catches wind that this young, brilliant author of the Institutes of the Christian Religion is also in Geneva, and so Pharaoh goes to his hotel room, raps on the door. After Calvin opens it up um, and greets him, Pharaoh demands that Calvin stay in Geneva. He does not continue on to Strasbourg. He says, you must stay in Geneva and assist with the work there, which is tenuous and in need of help. Calvin responds. He is planning to continue on north to Strasbourg. Farrell sticks a finger in his chest and he says, may God condemn your peace and the calm you seek for study if before our great need you withdraw and refuse our comfort and help. He's a bold man, if nothing else. Calvin later said, quote, Farrell's words shocked and broke me, so I desisted from the journey I had begun. <laughs> he stayed in Geneva, and for three years, he preached uh, here at St. Pierre. He preached there the gospel. He preached there the, the, these Ephesians 2 type truths laid before the people. He, he preached that it is by grace that though we are dead, God makes us alive. For instance, quote, he said, in the maxims of the law, God is seen as the rewarder of perfect righteousness and the avenger of sin. But in Christ, God's face shines out full of grace and gentleness to the poor and the unworthy sinner. That's precisely what the text before us this morning is declaring. Verses four and five, and then six and seven. They say, despite our spiritual deadness, the mercy 
and the love of God that comes to us and it gives life. It, it gives us the, our very ability for faith. Remember, faith is just the hand of a child reaching out to take hold of that which is offered to it. It's not our doing. It's not our work. Faith is just the hand of a child reaching out to take hold of that which is offered to it. Um, when you think about in that soccer stadium, right, Fabrice Muamba, so he suffered a massive cardiac arrest. He collapsed, and he died there on the field. And those in the stadium, as they began to realize what happened, and they started to chant his name, like I said, and then grew silent a second time as the weight of what was happening before their eyes fell upon them. They began to weep. And for 78 minutes, he was dead. And then he wasn't. (laughs) And in what can only be described as a miracle of God, working through the ordinary means of modern medicine with the oxygen mask and the defib and the shots of epinephrine right into the heart. He was raised alive. It's a great picture for this text that we're looking at, right? Because what doctor, when he, when he feels for the pulse and there is no pulse, what doctor, when he watches the monitor and it's just flatline? steps back from the patient, turns to his colleague and says, huh, I hope he figures that out. (laughs) It doesn't work. You you can't save yourself in an exact same way, but spiritually now, when you're dead, you're dead. You can't save yourself. You need something outside yourself brought to bear on you. And that's what Paul's saying to the Ephesians. And in two of the most well-known verses in the entire Bible, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Sola gratia. Listen. I fear there are many who believe that that, that on the final day, right, the reason they'll be there is because they've been here. Because we did stuff, right? Kindness to others. We attended church from time to time or maybe, maybe every time. And Paul is saying to that line of thinking, no, 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 no. You are saved through faith by grace. Grace is like a river, right? That's, uh, the Bible talks about it that way on a few, few occasions. And so if, if faith is the canal over which grace flows, then that means, think it through for a minute and bring it home. This means that every bit of trouble you have ever experienced, you think about recently a dark day for you. You think about your darkest day. And under the sovereign hand of God, 
This means that even on that day, maybe particularly on that day, the river of God's grace is eroding and and washing away your sense of self-sufficiency. That I got this. I'm good. I can handle this. And he's reminding us is all of grace. Calvin, for instance, he had heartache and trouble. He had dark days in Geneva, um, and God used that. In fact, along with uh, his friend William Farrell, the one with the finger in his chest there early on, um, the two of them together, you know, political winds shift, right? And so they were, they were expelled out of Geneva, which meant that after a three-year delay, Calvin finally made it up there to Strasbourg. There he had originally been planning to go. And so he pastored in that city there, uh, French refugees, uh, a congregation. It was just a little bit smaller than MCC is today, and Calvin called it, uh, when he wrote about it, my little church. Um, And he met there in Strasbourg a widow, a woman named Idelette de Bure, two children, and he married her. And those were probably the happiest days of his entire life, those three years in Strasbourg when he just got to pastor a church that needed a shepherd and he got to write and study and thereby bless the larger kingdom. And then in God's providence, political winds, uh, they shifted again. Back in Geneva, things were beginning to unravel. Roman Catholicism was attempting to retake the city. Things were a mess uh, in Calvin's absence. And so the church and the city authorities, they reached out and they begged Calvin to return back to the city, which is what he did. And really, it was those next 23 years, Calvin's second time in Geneva and up, right up until his death, um, that's probably why we know his name as well as we know it today, along with the writing of the Institutes. Um, so you have dead in sin, you have alive in Christ, and then last point on your outline, his workmanship for good works. His workmanship for good works. If you've kept your Bibles open, verse 10, it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the Greek behind workmanship there is poema. And I I know normally we just kind of like immediately forget the Greek, and I do as well. This one, though, maybe you can hold on to um, because it's like a poem. He's saying, you and I, in Christ, we are his poetry. There's only one other place in Scripture that this is used. It's in uh, Romans 1. It's talking about natural creation. So the world out there, the, the beauty, the stars, the trees, you know, the whole thing, it's poema. And then you are poema. You are, it literally translates, a work of art. Now, some of you are just a piece of work. You know who you are. But that's okay. 
because the river of God's grace is for you too. Amen. <laughs> Amen. After all, what is grace? Well, if I'm talking to grown-ups, I say grace means unmerited favor. If I'm talking to little kids, I teach them with the whiteboard, it's an acronym. God's riches at... Ooh, not enough of us know that. God's riches at Christ's expense. Maybe we should teach this to grown-ups too. That's what it is. God's riches at Christ's expense are given to us to use for others. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are therefore, church, meant to sing God's goodness and first we got to fill up our lungs with grace. And then you look at that soccer player, Muamba, who recovered. It took him a while. He, of course, had to retire. Do you want to you know what he did next and what he's still doing today? After that experience, he became a worldwide spokesman for heart disease. It makes perfect sense, right? After being given new life, he wanted to tell everybody how to be saved. And this is where doctrine becomes practical. If you're you always inclined to just jump to the to-do, Trav, just tell me what to do with this stuff. I think there's a lot of value in hanging out for a while in the doctrine, but we want, never want to stay on the freeway. Always an exit ramp into real life. Always an exit ramp down to ground level. So this is where doctrine becomes practical, that we're meant to sing God's kindness after we fill our lungs with his grace. For Calvin, when he returned to Geneva, his first Sunday, you know what he did? First Sunday preaching again after being begged to come back. We're sorry we kicked you out. Please come back. He climbed up into the pulpit. He didn't blast the trumpet of victory. He didn't rebuke them for expelling them in the first place. He took them right back to the middle of the psalm and the very next verse where he had left off three years prior. <laughs> and I love that. Because it speaks of a man who is not inclined to preach himself. He preached the Bible. And then, after Lord's Day services in Geneva, at that church, he began every Sunday locking the doors to the sanctuary. <laughs> Why? Because he believed that Christians, having been fed and equipped having been refreshed and nourished, are to be sent back out into the world. At MCC, we call it living on mission. That we gather large, we scatter small, because we're meant to sing God's kindness after we've filled our lungs with his grace. The end of grace um, verse five, is not verse 5. Just making us alive. The end goal of grace is verse 10. Making us a poema, a work of art to do good works. In Geneva, that meant that under Calvin's leadership for the next 23 years until the day of his death, the city um, and the church together now elevated the family. Um, they outlawed spousal abuse. They raised the institution of marriage. 
Legislation was enacted against uh, public drunkenness, disorderly conduct. Hospitals were built. The entire education system was overhauled. And a for real, no child left behind policy was enacted in that city. This is what the river of God's grace does. It always flows to the lowest point. The river of God's grace, it always flows to whoever's at the lowest point. And it raises us up. Someone said, grace pays a penalty we could never pay. It offers a gift we could never earn. And maybe for some today, it introduces us to a crossroads and a decision that we cannot avoid. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shame, grace and